Amen. We're there in Luke chapter number 19, and we've been making our way through the gospel of Luke, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And uh, this morning we saw Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. We, of course, saw the story of Zacchaeus. And if you don't remember, or if you weren't here, on Wednesday night, uh, we actually looked at Luke 19, verses 11 through 27, uh, which is the parable of the 10 pounds. So we've been doing chapter 19 a little bit out of order. We did the middle section, verses 11 through 27, on Wednesday night, verses 1 through 10 this morning. And tonight, we're going to finish Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 48, which deal with the triumphant entry of the Lord Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. And in verse 28, if you'll notice there, the Bible says, and when he, and of course that's Jesus, had thus spoken, he went before ascending up to Jerusalem. And this is the Lord Jesus Christ entering into Jerusalem. He has been on the road, and you and I have been on the road. We have been on the road with the Lord Jesus Christ uh, as he's been making his way into Jerusalem. And the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at tonight has to do with his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. It's usually celebrated as what's known today as Palm Sunday. Uh, The text that is before us takes place the Sunday uh, before the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It happens one week before his resurrection, and that's where we're at in this uh, portion of Scripture. Uh, We're there in Luke chapter 19, but just by way of introduction, let me Uh, remind you of a few things. If if you can flip back to Luke chapter 9, you're in Luke 19, but if you can flip back to Luke chapter 9, you may not be aware of this, but as you study the Gospels, you'll notice that the amount of details and chapters that are given to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ are not in proportion. For example, There's very little in comparison to the Gospels. When we talk about the Gospels, the book of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, we're talking about big books with 16, almost 30, you know, uh, chapters in them in different sizes, but good-sized books. And in those chapters, there's very little given to us about the birth of Christ. We've got some major passages on the birth of Christ, but we have just a handful of chapters that deal with the birth of Christ, almost nothing that deals with the childhood of Christ, except a small portion of Scripture. Absolutely nothing uh, is said about the Lord Jesus Christ from the ages of 12 to 30 years old. And then we delve into his ministry. But what's interesting is that the majority of the Gospels, a, a good portion of the Gospels, deals with really just the last few weeks uh, and the last week of the life of the Lord of Jesus Christ and, of course, dealing with his resurrection afterwards. There's a lot of details that are given about that last week. And, and I, I want you to just understand this uh, so you can kind of get the context. In Luke chapter 9, if you look down at verse number 51, Luke nine fifty-one, the Bible says, and it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. I want you to notice this in Luke nine fifty-one. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 9, in verse 51, is where Jesus Christ began to journey towards Jerusalem for the purpose of his crucifixion and, of course, his burial and resurrection. Now, this statement here in Luke chapter 9, 51, 
when it says that he, Jesus, steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem was, of course, 10 chapters ago in the Gospel of Luke. We find ourselves tonight in Luke chapter 19. This is found in Luke chapter 9. What I want you to, to understand is that for the disciples and for Jesus during their lifetime, this would have happened about six months earlier. So what we read about in Luke chapter 19, Jesus entering into Jerusalem, when he began to journey into Jerusalem in Luke chapter 9, the, the, the information that is covered between Luke 9 and Luke 19 covers about six months of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So for the disciples, this, would have, this statement would have been made about six months ago. For you and I, the statement was made about three months ago because it was about three months ago that we were in Luke chapter 9. So I just want you to understand that, that context. You have the Gospel of Luke, this big chapter, but from chapter 9 and on, we're really just in the last six months of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And from Luke 19, we're in the last week of his ministry and we have been on this journey with Jesus towards Jerusalem, making our way, making his way to Jerusalem. And of course, along the ways, we've had all sorts of encounters and parables and teachings and things that he has given the disciples. Go back to Luke chapter 19, if you would. So we're going to look at this, this passage of scripture dealing with what we normally refer to as Palm Sunday or the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And if you're taking notes tonight, and I always encourage you to take notes, let me just give you some thoughts or some headings that you could maybe jot down in your notes. First of all, tonight, I'd like for us to consider how Jesus enters Jerusalem. I want you to notice the Bible emphasizes how it is that Jesus enters Jerusalem. In Luke 19 and verse 29, the Bible says this, And it came to pass, when he was come nigh to Bethphage and Bethany, and I want you to notice this little phrase here in verse 29, at the mount called the Mount of Olives. At the mount called the Mount of Olives. Nothing is in the Bible for, uh, for, for, for fluff. Nothing is in there just incidentally or, or by coincidence. Everything is in there for a reason. And the Bible emphasizes to us that when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, right before he enters in, he enters in through the Mount of Olives or at the mount called the Mount of Olives. The Bible says when he was there, when he was come nigh to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and he sends them on an errand. But I want you to notice that when Jesus enters Jerusalem, he comes in through the Mount of Olives. And this has some significance and there is some, a little bit of typology uh, in his entrance here uh, that I'd like you to notice. Now, you're there in Luke chapter 19. Go with me, if you would, to the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14. It's one of the minor prophets right at the end of the Old Testament. In fact, if you can find the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, right before Malachi, you have the book of Zechariah. So if you can just get right to the end of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, right before Malachi, you have the book of Zechariah. Do me a favor, put a ribbon or a bookmark or something there in Zechariah because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. And I'd like you to be able to get there quickly. Zechariah chapter 14. You say, what is the significance to Jesus entering Jerusalem through the Mount of Olives? Now, the Mount of Olives, of course, you, you know has a lot of significance and it has a lot of end time significance. In fact, when Jesus taught 
his famous teaching on the end times. He taught it on the Mount of Olives, often referred to as the Olivet Discourse. We're actually going to see that in Luke chapter 21. We're going to spend two services or two different sermon times going through that passage dealing with end times prophecy as taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason that Jesus teaches about end times on the Mount of Olives is because the Mount of Olives has significance due to events coming in the future. In Zechariah 14 and verse 4, the Bible says this, And His feet, and the His feet there, or the word His, is really referring to the Messiah, and as we know, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is a reference to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the second coming of the Messiah. The Bible says, His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives, notice what the Bible says, this is what's going to happen when Jesus comes uh, for the second time, the second advent of Christ, as he comes on a white horse uh, with the saints following behind him. Of course, we know he comes from heaven on a white horse, but when he dismounts the horse and he sets his foot on earth for the second time, when he comes the second time, he will enter in through the Mount of Olives. The Bible says that his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and on the Mount, and I want you to notice there, verse 4, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. The Bible says that when Jesus comes back, he's going to place his feet upon the Mount of Olives, and when he does that, the Mount of Olives is going to split in half. The Bible says that it shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. When Jesus returns, we have this famous, probably the most famous, one of the most famous mountains in the Bible, the Mount of Olives. But when Jesus returns, the mountain is going to turn into a valley because when he steps on it, it's going to split in half. Now you say, what is the significance of that? The significance of that is this. We talked about it uh, on, on Wednesday night. When Jesus comes back on that white horse, he will be riding upon a horse and upon his thigh will be, be, be written the titles King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When he comes back the second time, it will be to set up his kingdom. It will be as a king. He is not coming back as a lamb. The first coming, he came as a lamb. John the Baptist saw the Lord Jesus Christ and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. But the second time he comes, the Bible says, he's coming as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's coming in his role as a king. Now the significance is this, that Jesus in Luke chapter 19 is about to be recognized as a king. So there's significance to him coming through the mount and uh, in the Mount of Olives because when he comes back the second time, that's how he's coming and he's going to split the mountain in half. He's coming on the, uh, uh, through the Mount of Olives to show that, that, is, that he is the Messiah, that he is the king, that he is the one. And here's what's interesting is when Jesus enters Jerusalem, he has been in Jerusalem before. The Bible tells us and different gospels tell us that he has been there for different events at different times. The reason that look, that look, good night. The reason that Luke, I haven't gotten much sleep. The reason that Luke emphasizes this coming or this journey from Jesus 
to Jerusalem all the way from Luke chapter number 9. The reason that that's emphasized is because this is the last time that Jesus comes to Jerusalem. When he comes to Jerusalem this time, he dies there. He's buried there. He resurrects there. This is the end of the ministry of Christ. Obviously, there's lots of chapters still to study and look at, but this is, we're in the final days of his ministry. And what's interesting is that when he comes in, he comes in through the Mount of Olives, and the next time that Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he'll be splitting the Mount of Olives. So there's end time significance there. How is it that Jesus enters Jerusalem? He's coming from and through the Mount of of olives. Now keep your place there in Zechariah. We're going to come right back to it. Go back to Luke chapter 19. Not only do we see significance in how he comes, but we see prophetic fulfillment in how he comes. We see prophetic significance and we see prophetic fulfillment. In Luke 19 and verse 30, the Bible says, remember he's coming through the mount and we saw there in verse 29, that he sent his disciples. If you notice there, the last part of verse 29, he sent two of his disciples. He sends them on an errand. What are they to do? Luke 19, 30, saying, Go ye into the village over against, uh, over against you, in the which at your entering ye shall find a colt. What's a colt? A colt is a young male horse or a related animal. It's a young male horse or a young male donkey or a, a, uh, an animal of that uh, uh, related family. And here Jesus tells them to go into the village. You shall find a colt tied. Notice what the Bible says. Whereon yet never man sat. This was a, a, a colt that had never been ridden. It was tied. And Jesus tells them, I want you to go find this colt. Lose him and bring him hither. Notice verse 31. And if any man ask you, why do you lose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, because the Lord hath need of him. Here we have Jesus giving the disciples instructions and he tells them, I want you to go and I want you to find this colt that's tied up. And I want you to, it's a colt that never man sat. And I want you to lose him and bring him hither. Bring him to me. And if anybody asks you, what are you doing? Just tell them the Lord hath need of him. Now, some people uh, believe, and, and, and I don't have a position either way. The Bible doesn't really tell us. But some people have the position that this was some sort of a miraculous thing where, you know, the disciples did some sort of a, a Jedi mind trick or something on, on, on this person. And they were able to take uh, the cold and they were able to take this animal uh, from the owner by simply saying that the Lord hath need of him. And that's totally possible that it was just a miracle and God worked that out. It's also possible that Jesus just already prearranged this, that he'd already sent the message uh, in advance and made the arrangements for the cult to be where it needed to be. And these individuals, when they ask the question, why do you lose him? They simply give the answer, the Lord hath need of him. The point is this, that it was very important to Jesus how he entered into Jerusalem. He had to enter in on a colt. He had to enter in on this colt whereon yet never man sat. And if it was a miracle, then that's great. I mean, wouldn't that be nice if you could go onto a car lot and uh, start driving the vehicle away? And if anybody said anything to you, you say, the Lord hath need of him, and, uh, and they just let you go. I don't know. If you try that, let me know how it works. 
you can call me on your one phone call you get from prison. <laughs> Verse 32. And they that were sent went their way and found even as he said. Aren't you thankful that you will always find that everything is always even as he said? Yes. Whenever Jesus says anything, it's always the way he says it is. Amen. And found even as he said unto them. And as they were losing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, Why lose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord have need of him. Now, what's the, what's the significance here? We saw that there was uh, significance in the mount, but what about significance in the colt of an ass? Go back to Zechariah, if you would. Zechariah chapter number 9. Zechariah chapter 9. This was actually a fulfillment of prophecy. It was important that it happened this way because it was prophesied this way. And Jesus is actually fulfilling prophecy by making these arrangements, getting this, uh, uh, this cult uh, and, and, and coming into Jerusalem this way. Ze- Zechariah 9, look at verse 9. Here's a prophecy from the prophet Zechariah, written hundreds of years before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the first coming. Zechariah 9.9, the Bible says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation. Lowly, meaning he's coming. Notice this is a, this was to let them know who their king was. Thy king cometh unto thee. But he's not coming like the average king. He's not coming high and lifted up. No, he's coming lowly. Remember, we talked about that this morning. He's coming lowly and riding upon an ass. An ass, of course, referring to a donkey. Notice, riding upon an ass and upon a colt. A colt is a young male horse or donkey or an animal of that family. He's riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. So in Zechariah, it was prophesied that Jesus would come. And again, I want you to notice, not on a white horse like maybe the average king would coming in to a parade. No, that happens later. That happens in Revelation 19. But the first time he enters Jerusalem, he comes in lowly riding upon an ass. And in the ancient world, we're told that horses were often a symbol of war. And we know the Bible agrees with that because the Bible says that the horse is prepared for the day of battle. But a an ass or a donkey would have been a picture or symbolism of peace. And Jesus is coming here lowly into Jerusalem, riding upon an ass and upon a colt. This was a prophecy that they would know that when their king, their Messiah, their anointed one, when thy king cometh unto thee, he is just and having salvation, he's going to come lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. This was prophetic. Go back to Luke chapter 19. So Jesus works it out to make sure that he's riding upon this colt, that he's riding upon this ass, this donkey. And the Bible tells us that he sat, just to emphasize this, Luke 19.30, he, he took a colt whereon yet never man sat. We're going to notice that in this passage of Scripture, Jesus is revealing himself and proclaiming himself as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the priest, as the prophet, as the king. Well, notice that in this passage of Scripture, there's an emphasis 
on his deity. The emphasis on his deity is his sovereignty over nature. See, the Bible tells us that he took a colt tied whereon yet never man sat. He took a donkey into Jerusalem in the middle of a parade, is what you and I would call it, with hundreds and thousands of people cheering him on as he enters in, and he rides on a donkey that no one's ever ridden, no one's ever trained, hasn't been broken. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're going to ride into a parade where thousands of people are going to be watching you and cheering you on, you think you would have ridden upon a horse that's been trained to do that, a donkey that's been trained to do that, a donkey that's been trained to follow orders and to sit with. Donkeys by nature are known as being stubborn. But Jesus takes this donkey whereon never man sat and had absolutely no problem with this donkey giving him any problems. Why? Because Jesus is sovereign over nature. Because Jesus is the Lord, not just the Lord in the sense of over man, but he is the Lord over nature itself. He had no problem with riding on a colt where never man sat. In fact, riding a colt where never man sat shows us the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice there's another thought here, and it's this. Writing on the colt that never man sat not only shows us the sovereignty of Christ, but it also shows us the preeminence of Christ. You'll notice that Jesus has this habit in his life of not wanting to share things. He wants to use things that have never been used. He wants to use things that are only for him. Here we see him. He doesn't want any colt. He doesn't want any donkey. He doesn't want any horse. He doesn't want an animal that's already been been written. No, he wants an animal that has been set aside for his use, whereon yet never man sat. And you'll notice that this is a, there's a theme of this in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this. He was born of a virgin. He was uh, developed, his body developed in a womb, you could say, that had never been used. A womb that had never carried any other child. Now, we know that Mary had children after the birth of Christ. But when he was born of the Virgin Mary, he was born into a womb whereon yet never man sat. If I could say it that way. When you consider the womb that was chosen for Christ, we see the preeminence that he comes first. He doesn't want the leftovers. He doesn't want what's already been used. He comes first. How about this? Not only the womb, but what about the tomb? Think about the tomb that was used for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ to have his body. It was donated by a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. He was a rich man who had a tomb carved into rock in a cave into stone. And it was a tomb that man had never used. It was a brand new tomb, had never housed a body, had never had a body. And that was the tomb that was used by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm just here to tell you something. There's an image here or a picture here that God does not want the leftovers. He doesn't want you. You say, well, you know, can, can God use me? Yes, he wants you, but he wants you first and he wants you only to himself. He wants a colt whereon yet never man sat. He wants to have you all to himself. So we see the fulfillment of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see 
the importance of how Jesus entered Jerusalem. He came in from the Mount of Olives. He came in on the colt of an ass. But then I want to answer this question, and this is where we'll spend a little bit of time tonight, and it is not only how Jesus enters Jerusalem, but why Jesus enters Jerusalem. Why does Jesus enter Jerusalem at all? What was the point of this whole big celebration, this, this uh, Palm Sunday? You'll notice, and I've talked about this on Sunday morning and, and Wednesday night, I told you we'd be dealing with this issue. You're there in Luke chapter 19. Flip back to Luke chapter 5, if you would. Luke chapter 5. You may have noticed as we've been traveling through the Gospel of Luke that Jesus does something that could be a little confusing to us, and it is this, that throughout His ministry, before this moment where we're at right now in Luke chapter 19, before this, Jesus was trying to conceal who He was. Now, there's lots of passages I could take you to to prove this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I'll show you enough to make the point. Look at Luke chapter 5 and verse 12. Let's just look at some examples of how Jesus was trying to conceal who He was. Luke 5, 12. And it came to pass when He, that's Jesus, was in a certain city. Behold, a man full of leprosy, who seeing Jesus fell on his face and besought him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And he put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately the leprosy departed from him. This is just an example of a standard uh, uh, miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ, where Jesus heals somebody. Here in this example, it's a man of leprosy. He says, I will be thou clean. And immediately the leprosy departed from him. But I want you to notice verse 14. And he, Jesus, charged him, the man that just got healed. Notice, notice what Jesus says to him. He, he charged him to tell no man. He said, don't tell anybody about this. But go and show thyself to the priest and offer thy, for thy cleansing according as Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. He heals this man of leprosy and then he tells him, don't tell anybody. And if you read the Gospels, you'll find this a lot where Jesus heals somebody, he performs a miracle, and he says, don't tell anybody. And oftentimes, these people go off and they proclaim what Jesus has done. And they tell people anyway, which is why the fame of Jesus was abroad and why he had the crowds pressing upon him and why there were so many people coming to see him. But you'll notice that Jesus was often trying to tell people, hey, Let's not announce this. Let's not make a big deal about this. Remember when Jesus resurrected the little daughter? We saw the 12-year-old girl. He goes in and he resurrects her from the dead. What does he say to his parents? Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody about this. Let me give you another example. Go to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 and verse 20. Luke chapter 9 and verse 20. The Bible says, He said unto them, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? He just got done asking them, who do the people say that I am? And they said, some, some say that you're Jeremiah. Some say that you're uh, Elijah. Some say that you're John. Some say that you're a great prophet. So he asked them, but whom say ye that I am? Peter answering said, the Christ of God. And the word Christ means Messiah. And, and the word Messiah means the anointed one, the chosen one, the one that was to come. He said, you're the Christ of God. In Matthew, uh, it's recorded this way. Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. But notice what Jesus says to them in Luke 9, 21. And he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing. 
And that is often confusing to us because we're like, why is Jesus downplaying who he is? Why is he trying to conceal who he is? And to add even more confusion to that, as you read the Gospels, you might be more confused by the fact that there are other instances where Jesus tells people, go and spread this abroad. Now you say, well, well, when is that? And here's what I want you to understand, and I won't have you turn to all these places. Go to John chapter 6. If you're there in Luke, just flip over to John, John chapter 6. Here's an example of when he told someone to go tell everyone. Remember when he cast out legion out of the possessed man? He told him, remember that guy said, hey, I want to come with you. And Jesus said, go, go back home. Go back to your homeland and spread abroad what, what great things have been done. He tells him, go tell everybody about me. So sometimes people get confused. They're like, Jesus is telling some people, don't tell people who I am. He's telling other people, go tell them who I am. What is the reason for this? And, and I want you to understand, the Bible tells us why it is that Jesus does this. And there's primarily two reasons as to why Jesus was telling people, hey, keep this on the down low. You know, I don't want you to tell a lot of people this. Don't make a big deal about it. Don't call the news cameras. Don't call the newspaper. Don't, I, just, just go tell the priest, do the things you got to do, but don't go around saying this. You say, why is it that Jesus was doing that? Are you there in John chapter 6? John chapter 6 verse 15. Two main reasons why Jesus was doing that. The first one is found in John 6 15. And when Jesus, the Bible says John 6 15, when Jesus therefore perceived, notice what the Bible says, that they would come and take him by force. What does that mean? That means they were going to make him. They are going to force him. Say, so what are they going to force him to do? It's a good thing. It's a nice thing. They were going to come and take him by force. Notice, to make him a king. When Jesus perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, notice what he does. He departed again into a mountain himself alone. See, the reason that Jesus told people, hey, don't make a big deal about this, is because he was trying to avoid his followers making him king. You, you ask, why was he, try, was he trying to avoid people from acknowledging him as king? Please understand this. He was trying to avoid his followers acknowledging him, praising him, and, uh, and giving him the, the acknowledgement of king too prematurely. He needed it to be done in his timetable. The problem was not that they were acknowledging him as king. The problem is that they were going to try to make him king before he was ready. So he departed again into a mountain himself alone. That's the good guys. Let's look at the bad guys. Go to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Not only was he trying to avoid his followers making him a king prematurely, he was also trying to avoid his enemies putting him to death. You say he was trying to avoid being put to death. Oh, no, no. He, he knew that he was going to be put to death. By the way, just know this. No man took his life. He laid down his life. But what he was trying to avoid is his enemies putting him to death prematurely. Are you there in John 7? Look at verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. 
Galilee is the northern part of Israel. If you've looked at a map, or you can look at the map in the back of your Bible, maybe, of the nation of Israel, you have the northern part, which is where the Sea of Galilee is. Then you have a river that comes down from the Sea of Galilee, known as the, uh, as, as the Jordan River. And then it comes down into the southern part of uh, Israel, which is Judea. Jesus, his primary focus of his ministry, took part in, in that northern part of Israel, known as Galilee. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, Notice, for he would not walk in jewelry. Jewelry is referring to Judah. And, and by the way, let me just say this. In the Bible, the nation of Israel, the Hebrews, the Israelites, were not called Jews the entire time. It was only after the kingdom divided into the northern kingdom and southern kingdom, and really only after the northern kingdom went into captivity, that those who were in Judea were called Jews. Here the Bible says... It refers to it as jewelry. So he would not walk in jewelry. This is the southern part of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem is. Why would he not walk in jewelry? Here's why. Because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren, and I just want you to, I know I'm showing you a lot of stuff, but I want you to understand this. This is before his brothers believed on Christ. The brothers of Jesus did not believe on him until after the resurrection. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea. They're telling him, Why don't you go into Judea? That thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. They're not, they're not disciples of Jesus yet. They will become disciples of Jesus, but not yet. And at this point, they're kind of antagonizing or being hostile towards Jesus, saying, Why don't you go down to Jerusalem that your disciples may see uh, uh, the works that thou doest? Notice the response of Jesus, John chapter 7 and verse 6. Then Jesus said unto them, my time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. You say, why did Jesus say my time is not yet come? Because he's explained to them, look, I am going to go down to Judea, and I am going to be put to death, but I'm going to lay down my life. It'll be done on my timetable, and I'm not ready to do that yet. It's interesting because when Jesus gets arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, what does he say? He, say, he says to the, the soldiers that are arresting him, he says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. But here in John 7, he says, my time has not yet come. So if you want to know why it is that Jesus would often tell people to not make a big deal about the miracle, not go around telling people about the resurrection, don't make a big deal about this, is because he was trying to avoid two things. One is that his followers would try to make him a king prematurely. The other is that his enemies would try to put him to death prematurely. Then you have the question of, well, what about Legion? Why do you tell Legion, go back home and spread the news? Here's why. Because Legion was the man that had the Legion cast out was from Decapolis, which is a Gentile nation. So there was no issue with, he, with him going back and proclaiming Jesus because the Gentile nation wasn't going to make Jesus the king of the Jews. And they weren't going to put him to death. The issue was with the timing and the control of the timing, the proclamation of himself as king and the proclamation that would put him to death. Now with that said, Go back to Luke chapter 19. And I said all that to help you understand this. The emphasis that we read when Jesus enters Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday is because before Jesus was trying to conceal who he was, 
Now, Jesus is ready to proclaim who he is. Jesus is now ready to put into motion the events that will end up with him being the sacrificial lamb, the one that is uh, put to death at the cross. And the way that Jesus does this is in this triumphant entry into Jerusalem, this, along with uh, several other things, but this is really the thing that kicks off the Pharisees to say, we got to put this guy to death. So why does Jesus enter Jerusalem? He enters Jerusalem because he's ready. He's ready for what? First, to be acknowledged as king. Notice Luke 19 and verse 35. Luke 19, 35. And they brought him to Jesus. That's referring to the donkey. And they cast their garments upon the colt. And they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he, when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Notice now Jesus is not saying, Shh, be quiet, don't tell anybody. No, now he is accepting their praise. He is accepting their glory. He is accepting uh, their rejoicing. Why? Because he really was the king. He really was the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. By the way, if you're interested, this is for your notes. You can jot this down. That phrase, when they shouted, blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord, that is a quote from Psalm 118. And verse 26, Psalm 118 and verse 26, the Bible says, Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. Why, why did Jesus enter Jerusalem this way? It was because he was now, before he was trying to conceal who he was, now Jesus is ready to proclaim who he was, and he's proclaiming that he is king. And he is ready to set into motion the events that will end in his death. Look at verse 39. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. Jesus is coming in on this donkey, whereon never man sat. They're throwing clothes before him. They're throwing palm leaves before him. They're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. The, the Pharisees say, said to Jesus, Master, rebuke thy disciples. They're saying, hey, shut them up. Don't let them say that. Tell them they're not allowed to say that. Notice Jesus' respond. In the past, Jesus would say, no, no, be quiet. Don't, don't go proclaiming this. Don't go around saying this. I don't need you to say this. I, I, I still need some time. I've got things I need to do. But now Jesus says, Luke 19, 40, and he, and, and he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. You said, do you believe that literally? I do. Because this, again, is the moment in which Jesus is proclaiming himself King of kings, Lord of lords, deity on earth, the anointed one, the Christ. He says, if these, he said, this has been already set in motion. This has been prophesied since Zechariah the prophet. And if I would tell these to hold their peace, the stones themselves would cry out. Why? Because he's sovereign over nature too. Even the stones acknowledge him as king. I want you to notice this. Go, go, go to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, we're in the context 
of this Palm Sunday. John chapter 12. Look at verse number, uh, let me see. I I was going to have you look at verse 19, but let me just. Look at verse 12, just so you can see the context. John 12, 12. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees, that's why it's called Palm Sunday, and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found in a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, here's a quote from Zechariah, Daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. That's the context. Palm Sunday, right? Look at verse 19. John 12 and verse 19. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world is gone after him. They said, we have a problem here. Jesus was, look, here's what they're saying. He was, when he was trying to keep it hush-hush, he was more popular than we were comfortable with. Now he's just openly proclaiming himself. Now he's coming in on an ass's cult. They, they knew that Zechariah had prophesied that the Messiah, the king, would come on, uh, on, uh, on the cult uh, of an ass into Jerusalem. They said, now he's doing it openly. Now he won't tell them to be quiet. Now he's allowing them to praise them. And this is what in, initially gets the uh, plan going. They say, we got to put him to death. And I want you to understand that this was the plan of Jesus. This is why he entered in this way. He entered in this way to be acknowledged as king. And he entered in this way to be put to death. But there's another reason. And let me just quickly explain this to you and then we'll move on to the last point. Go to Exodus if you would. Exodus chapter 12. Second book in the Bible, Exodus chapter 12. Remember that this event is known as Palm Sunday. It happens on the first day of the week, which would be a Sunday. It's one week before the resurrection of Christ. Some people believe that Jesus died on Friday. We don't believe that. We believe he died on Wednesday. So others argue that he died on Thursday. And either way, no matter what your position is, we know that he died several days after Palm Sunday. The events we're reading of are just a few days before the crucifixion of Christ. And three days later, he will resurrect one week from this event on Sunday. He enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and one week later is Resurrection Sunday, or what we refer to as Easter Sunday. The Bible tells us, remember I quoted this to you already, John acknowledged Jesus as the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. 1 Corinthians tells us that Jesus is our Passover. The Passover lamb was a sacrifice that was done during Passover, and it was a picture of the coming sacrifice of the coming Messiah. I don't have a lot of time to spend on this, but let me just quickly explain this to you. When Moses was in Egypt doing the work of God to get the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, You're familiar with the uh, uh, ten plagues that he brought upon the nation of Israel. He brought these nine wonderful plagues and, and amazing plagues and things that he did to show the power of God. But the last plague, the one that actually got the children of Israel out of Egypt, was when the angel of death 
came to Egypt and put to death the firstborn child, does that sound familiar? Of, of in every household. The children of Israel were instructed that they were to take a lamb and sacrifice the lamb, and they were to take the blood and, and put it upon the doorpost of each house. And when the angel of death would come, if he saw the blood upon the doorpost, he would pass over that house. He would not take the life. The judgment of God would not come upon that house, which is why he's referred to as Passover. In Exodus 12, we have Moses giving the instructions for Passover. I want you to notice what he says. Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year. Speak ye unto the congregation of Israel, saying... Notice the instructions. They're beginning a new nation here, right? So God, God tells Moses, and Moses tells the children of Israel, this is going to be our January. This is going to be the first day, the first month of our year. And here's what I want you to do, verse 3. Speaking unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the house will be too little, for the lamb, let him and his neighbor uh, next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Notice verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Here we have Moses giving instructions to the children of Israel. He says, on the 10th day of this month, I want you to choose a lamb. I want you to choose a lamb, he says, that is a firstborn lamb, a male lamb, and that it has no blemish, that it has no problems, that it's not crippled, that it's not weak, that it's not sick, that it has no issues. I want it to be as perfect as possible. And he says, when you choose the lamb, then I, just to make sure that it's the right lamb, he said, you're going to choose the lamb on the 10th day of the month, but you're going to hold it until the 14th day of the month. And during those, those days in between, your job is to look at that lamb, examine that lamb, make sure that's the right lamb. And then on the 14th day of the month, verse 6, ye shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Now remember that this Passover lamb is a type or a foreshadow or a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. You say, what is Palm Sunday about? Palm Sunday, and when Jesus entered into Jerusalem on this day, was the day that the Lamb was chosen. And He enters in on the 10th day of the first month, on Palm Sunday, and presents Himself as the Lamb, as the Chosen One, as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the only begotten Son of God, without blemish, without sin. And what did they do? For the next three days, they examine him. They take him before the religious elite and they judge him. They take him before Herod and they judge him. They take him before Pilate and they judge him. And what is the outcome? What is the result of their examination? Pilate famously says, I find no fault in him. He was blemished. He had no blemish. He had no sin. 
And then what happens? Verse 6, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel put him to death. We have no king but Caesar, they said. We will not have this man to reign over us, they said. His blood be upon us and upon our children, they said. And they put the Lamb of God to death. You say, what is it that's happening here in this Passover, this Palm Sunday event? What's happening is that Jesus is presenting himself as the Lamb, the spotless Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Go back to Luke chapter 19. Look at verse 41. We saw how Jesus enters Jerusalem. He comes in from the Mount of Olives. He comes in on a colt of an ass. We saw why Jesus entered Jerusalem. He enters Jerusalem because before this he was trying to conceal who he was. Now he's ready to proclaim who he is. And then I want you to notice thirdly tonight, we see when Jesus enters Jerusalem. When is it that Jesus enters Jerusalem? When Jesus enters Jerusalem, Luke 19, verse 41, the Bible says this, And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. It's interesting to me that the Bible never records for us that Jesus laughed, and I'm sure he laughed. But the Bible records for us a couple of times that Jesus wept. We know that he wept for Lazarus. And here we see him beholding the city, Jerusalem. And the Bible says he wept over it. Notice what he says in verse 42, saying, this is Jesus speaking about the city, Jerusalem. He says, if thou hadst known. He said, if you would have known, even now. Notice what he says. At least in this thy day. You would think, since they know that Passover is just a few days away, since they know that today is a day that the lamb has to be chosen, that the, for the next several days the lamb has to be examined, that later on this week the lamb has to be put to death, and you've got Jesus here who's the Messiah, who's fulfilling prophecy, riding in on a colt and riding in as king, being proclaimed king. You would think they'd put it together and say, I think this might be the lamb of God. But they didn't see it. He says, if thou hadst known, even now at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto peace, he says, but now they are hid from thine eyes. He says, if you would have known, but you don't see it. You know what's interesting to me? Is that people will come to a church like this, even people will come to a church like this, and hear preaching just like this, and walk out those doors unsaved, unregenerated. And I wonder, don't you see it? Jesus says, if thou hadst known, but now they are hid from thine eyes. And then Jesus begins to talk about another event that would happen in the future for him. It's already happened for us. He begins to talk about the destruction of Jerusalem. In verses 41 and 42, he talks about the death of Jesus, death of himself. In verses 43 and 44, he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem. Notice what he says, verse 43. For the days shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave 
in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Jesus says, there's coming a day when this city is going to be destroyed. In fact, what Jesus is explaining, and I'd like you to see this, go, go to Daniel, just real quickly, Daniel, in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 9. If you can find those major prophetic books towards the end of the Bible, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, those big books, right after Ezekiel, you have the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. See, why does Jesus connect his death and the destruction of Jerusalem? The death of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem. Here's why. Because those two events are prophetically connected. Jesus is telling them, this city is going to be destroyed. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The temple is going to be destroyed. And they're not going to leave one stone upon another because you rejected me as Messiah. Both of these events are prophetically connected. They're predicted. If the Jews would have seen or realized who Jesus was, they could have had salvation, but because they failed to see it, because they would not see it, Jesus says, not only will you be destroyed, but the city is going to be destroyed. Let me just show it to you in prophecy real quickly, Daniel 9.26. What is it that Jesus is referring to? Daniel 9.26, I'm not going to get deep into this because this is a whole other sermon. But in Daniel chapter 9, we have Daniel explaining Daniel's 70 weeks. And of course, Daniel's 70th week is a very well-known phrase or week or terminology used to describe end times prophecy. It is a week that literally happened during the time in which Daniel spoke. But it's also a week that, that will prophetically one day happen. What happened in the days of Daniel were simply a type or a foreshadow of the big Daniel 70th week that is yet to come. In Daniel 9.26, he's been talking about those 70 weeks. And he first refers to, for those of you that care about Daniel's 70 weeks, you need to understand that the weeks are divided into three different parts. The first part is the first seven weeks. These parts are disconnected. They are not chronological, uh, meaning that they just go in order. There are gaps between the parts. There's the first seven weeks which if you look at Daniel 9.26, you'll notice that that is a reference to when the temple gets rebuilt. When Daniel is writing the temple, the second temple, uh, excuse me, the temple of Solomon, the first temple, has been destroyed, and Daniel is referring to the prophecies of, the, of that temple being rebuilt. We, of course, read about that in Nehemiah and Ezra when Ezra goes back and rebuilds the temple. The seven weeks that Daniel refers to are the 49 years that it took to rebuild that second temple. Then he has a second part here in verse 26, because when Daniel talks about weeks, he's not talking about weeks like you and I talk about weeks of days. He's referring to weeks of years. So when he talks about seven weeks, it's 49 days. And if you remember the Pharisees, they said to Jesus, remember Jesus said that, in, that, that they're going to destroy the temple, and in three days he will build it up, referring to his body? But they thought he was referring to the temple, and they said, 49 years was this building, this temple and building. That's what they're referring to, the first seven weeks of Daniel's 70 weeks. Then you have a second part, Daniel 9.26, and after three score and two weeks, what is that? 62 weeks, shall Messiah be cut off. This is a second portion 
of this paraf- uh, of this of this prophecy, and it is referring to the day that the Messiah will be cut off. What does that mean? It means the Messiah is going to be put to death. Notice what it says. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. He didn't die for himself. He died for us. And the people of the prince, who's that referring to? We know now that that is a reference to the Roman Empire. The people of the prince shall come, excuse me, that shall come. Notice what, notice what Daniel says. Shall destroy the city. What city? Jerusalem. And the sanctuary. What sanctuary? The temple. Notice that Daniel connects these two thoughts. After three score and two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. The Messiah dies. And then he says, the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and Jerusalem. And the, uh, the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. Here we're told that when the city is destroyed and when the sanctuary is destroyed, Daniel tells us it it happens as a result of the war. Here's what Daniel says. Daniel says the Messiah is coming and he's going to be cut off. He's going to get put to death. He's not going to die for himself, but he will die uh, for us. He shall not uh, be cut off for himself. And then Daniel says, as a result of that, the city will be destroyed and the sanctuary will be destroyed in a war. The interesting thing is that That's exactly what Jesus is referring to. Go back to Luke 19. When he enters Jerusalem and he's getting ready to be put to death, he says, hey, Jews, hey, southern kingdom of Judah. He says, if thou hadst known, if you would have known the prophecy of Daniel, if you would have known the prophecy of Zechariah, if you would have known, he says, if thou hadst known, Luke 19.42, even now, at least in this thy day. He said, you didn't realize that Daniel was writing about this day. This is the day. The things would belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee, that thine enemy shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side. See, Jesus is referring to a coming war. The same war that Daniel was referring to. What is that war? That's historically known as the first Jewish-Roman war. Happened in 66 AD. Ended in 73 AD. And right in the midst of that seven-year war, The temple was destroyed, 70 AD. Exactly how Jesus predicted. And Jesus said, you missed it. It was right there. You missed it. The prophecies were there. You missed it. He said, it was your day. He said, in this thy day, verse 42. Look at verse 44. And shall lay thee even with the ground. And thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another. By the way, let me just say this. I don't believe that that wall over there, that wailing wall is the wall of, of the temple. Because Jesus said that they, were not, that they would not leave one stone upon another. Because thou knewest not, notice what he says, the time of thy visitation. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, I personally came to you. I came and I boldly proclaimed myself your king. 
I boldly proclaimed myself your Christ. I boldly proclaimed myself deity. I told you that the stones would cry out because I'm not Lord just over man. I'm Lord over nature itself. He said, I came and I visited you. This is the day of your visitation, and you rejected it. And he says, as a result, you're going to die and go to hell, and the city will be destroyed. You say, what's the application? Here's the application. The Bible says about salvation, today is the day of salvation. The Bible says that today is the day. The day that he has revealed himself. The day of your visitation. And yet, unfortunately, there are many who will reject him. Not accept him. Not believe him. You say, what will happen to them? Same thing that happened to that temple in that city. They will be destroyed. Look at verse 45. It's funny to me that Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple, and then in verse 45, he goes to see the temple. Luke 19, 45. We're almost done. We'll go to verse 48 and we'll finish. And he went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein and them that bought. This is what's often referred to as the cleansing of the temple. Don't let this confuse you. Jesus did this two different times in his ministry. He did it at the beginning of his ministry. He went in there and threw out all the money changers and the people that sold and bought in the temple. And then right before his death, he goes in a second time for the second cleansing of the temple. And he cast out them that sold therein and them that bought. Why? Because they had turned the house of God into a house of merchandise. And I'm not preaching on this, but let me just say this. Don't come to church to push your business. Don't come to church to, to, to get sales. You know, I'm not against church people doing business with each other, and you guys get to know each other, want to do business with each other. That, that's, that's between you and, and God, and as long as you have a good attitude about it, I don't care. But if, you're, if you think I'm going to come to church and I'm just going to get all these clients and try to sell all this stuff to all these people, you need to get right with God or you need to get out. Because Jesus cast out them that sold therein. And them that bought. And look, I believe this so much. My wife and I have a little business where we have children's books that we produce or whatever. And I I just will not even, I will not sell a book just in this building. And I know that the building's not the church and all that, but, you know, we will just ship ship the bill. The, you know, people want to, oh, let me give you money. It's like, you can buy them on the website. You say, why? Because I don't want to turn the house of God into a house of merchandise. I'm not here to promote myself. And you shouldn't be promoting your business and your stuff. You shouldn't be talking to church people about your business. You say, what is it appropriate? When they come to you, when they come to you and say, hey, can you help me with X, Y, and Z? Then, yeah, you know, let's talk on Monday. But you shouldn't be doing business in the house of God. Jesus had upset him so bad that two different times he went in and threw out all the business people trying to make money in the house of God. Look at verse 46, saying unto them, it is written, my house is the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. This is a place to do spiritual work to pray, to praise, to preach. Not a place to make money and have business. And then we see the end of the chapter, and this is the point. Luke 19, 47. And he taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him and could not find what they might do, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. I don't know about you, maybe it's just because I'm a preacher, but I just love that little phrase at the end of verse 48. For all the people were very attentive to hear him. To hear who? Jesus. Who's Jesus? The word of God. 
Say, Pastor, why are you always telling people, hey, why don't you come back Sunday night? Why don't you come back Wednesday night? Why are you always trying to get a crowd in here and, and get people in, into the building uh, so, so they can hear you preach? You know, I'm not really that interested in you hearing me preach, but I'd love for you to be very attentive to hear him, to hear his word preach. And I'll, I'll tell you this, I do, I do the best I can to not give you a lot of my own philosophies and stuff. If I'm giving you an opinion, I try to tell you this is my opinion. But we're pretty hot and heavy on the Word of God around here. You get the Word of God in heavy doses, you say, why? Because we want all the people to be very attentive to hear Him. Because that will change your life. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for the story, what it means, what it signifies. The prophecies that were fulfilled and the prophecies that were predicted. And Lord, I pray that you would always help us to acknowledge you as king and sovereign over nature itself. And Lord, if there's anybody here tonight who's not saved, I pray that they would realize that today is the accepted day. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of their visitation. That they would be saved they would not leave here rejecting Jesus as king, as Lord, as deity. We love you. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We're going to have Brother RJ come up and lead us in a final song. just want to remind you that we'd love for you to come back to church on Wednesday night. And you say, what are we going to do? We're going to sit quietly and be very attentive to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ.